What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Cincinnati Bengals cornerback, Chidabe Awuzie. In this conversation, we discuss playing in the Super Bowl, what he spent his first million dollars on, investing in private businesses, crypto, NFTs, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, are now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe. J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Athletic Brewing. When it comes to non-alcoholic beers, Athletic Brewing changed the game. Their beer tastes amazing, and since each can is only 25 calories, 5 carbs, and made with organic grains, I can now enjoy the taste of a great beer without compromising my sleep or performance. But here's the best part. Athletic Brewing is now offering my listeners 20% off their first order with code JOE20. That's J-O-E-2-0. So as you prepare to stock the fridge for March Madness, now's the perfect time to buy a refreshing, great-tasting beer without the consequences. Next up is 8Sleep. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues. Yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before, all thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro covered by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoras, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. 
They're all powered by Eight Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to eightsleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. Eight Sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, what's up, everyone? I am here today with Chitabe Awuzi. He also said I could just call him Cheeto, so I'm going to stick with that. What's going on, man? How are you? Man, doing well. Blessed. How are you, brother? I'm doing well also. So I feel like we just got to clear the air real quick. What's going on after the Super Bowl, man? What's the feeling like? It's obviously, I'm assuming you're upset to some degree, but walk me through kind of how what happens after the game. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of emotions at hand right after the game. It's something that I've never done before is losing a Super Bowl, let alone playing a Super Bowl. So coming into the locker room, a lot of guys, very emotional, just being real introspective on everything that happened. And obviously not wanting the the result that we got is not what we wanted. So it was kind of weird, you know, it's like we got this far, but weren't able to complete the mission. But now a couple of weeks have passed. It kind of has given new perspective, you know, like we were blessed enough to play in the Super Bowl and we did a lot of things where we can replicate it again. We can have a chance to go back. So that's definitely the goal to go back and win it this time. And basically, you know, the things that were really important on this team was the locker room. You know, the locker room was really great. The players that we had and everything and, you have a great locker room, a quarterback that can make plays, and a solid defense. So it's definitely an opportunity to go back. So that's that's the goal for this year. So you signed with the Bengals last year. You spent time with the Cowboys beforehand, who you were drafted to out of college. When you signed with the Bengals, like, be honest, did you think that y'all were going to the Super Bowl or had a chance? It's a lot of stuff that went into that decision. Money is obviously part of it. Let's not be stupid, right? Like, money's part of it. I mean, interestingly enough, I actually had better offers fiscally better offers than Cincinnati. But my biggest thing entering into free agency was respect. I wanted to get my name out there. I wanted people to know my game. I wanted to be in an environment where I could produce what I wanted to do. And since he called at first, you know, I was like, I didn't know nothing much about the bank because I was like, ah, <laughs> let's see if we can get more. You know, let's, let's, see, let's see what else is out there. But then, you know, actually doing my research, talking to some of the guys, and the coaches, it really just looked like a, a real nice fit. They believed in me first. They were one of the first teams that called me. And it was a big switch from Dallas to Cincinnati, but obviously I'm starting to see the fruits of that switch. Did not definitely think that we would go to Super Bowl first year, but I knew we had a chance. We had a team. We had a unit that can do that at some point. Yeah, Joe Burrow, I think, I don't know if it was during the playoffs or during the regular season, he was like, yeah, I stay out of trouble. You know, I live in Cincinnati. There's not much to do. I'm like, dude, that's bullshit. You can find trouble in Cincinnati if you want to. Yeah, I think he was trying to feed into the stereotype a little bit, having a little fun. People don't know Joe Burrow, he a funny guy. He a funny guy. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, I think he was just trying to have a little fun. We definitely have a lot of stuff to do in Cincinnati, and we do partake in some activities. Obviously, COVID responsibly, but we take we partake in some activities. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. All right. Walk me through what happens in free agency, right? I don't know if you knew you were leaving the Cowboys and you were going to explore other places or like what that conversation was like, but just walk me through the process for someone who's never done this and has no idea kind of how it works. Do you just, the Cowboys essentially say, hey, look, we're not going to resign you. You can go look other places or how does that work? Obviously, everybody's situation is different. But for me, entering into the offseason, you know, there wasn't that much talk of like them resigning me. No one reached out. 
we are going to be patient. You know, we're going to let them reach out if they wanted me to come back. And that never happened, you know, so they never gave me a deal or nothing was on the table. And I kind of moved forward with that, like, okay, let me just make sure I'm in my best position to wherever I need to go, that I'm going to be able to play my best ball. I remember usually in the off season, I go in very early and I start working with the strength staff, you know, by February or even sometimes late January. And in this particular time, I wasn't present, you know, because I knew free agency was looming. And then one day I came in the locker room, like close to the end of the league year. I just grabbed all my stuff, put it in a bag and kind of walked out. And people were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, taking some stuff back home, you know. <laughs> that was the last time I've been into the Cowboys facilities. But it's still always love for me to the Cowboys. And yeah, the first day of free agency, I pretty much was signed. And that was that. Cool, cool. Do you even visit any of these cities before you go or see the facilities or you just kind of sign up for it? Yeah. So once I committed verbally, I had to go to Cincinnati to sign. And then once I went there, actually when I signed, you know, I was getting calls from Joe Burrow, TJ Uzoma, Sam Hubbard, a lot of the guys who had been to Cincinnati already. And when I got up there, you know, I was able to meet all those guys. And we went to a dinner at this place called Jeff Ruby's, which was one of the best things probably in the world. If you have not been to Cincinnati and you're planning to go, go to Jeff Ruby's, get that steak burrow, and it'll change your life. But yeah. That was- it's called Steak Burrow? He has a steak named after a steak burrow. It's a steak. <laughs> With uh, like Louisiana crawfish and like salt. It's crazy. It's, I can't really explain it. I can't explain the taste other than it's one of the nine wonders of the world. No wonder No wonder he took you there. Yeah. It's probably quite a surprise to open the menu and see a steak named after him, but <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the transition from college, right? So you went to Colorado, which was, you know, a good school, obviously, but it's different than LSU or Ohio State or Alabama or any of these other schools that are competing for a national championship every year. How was that transition going into the NFL from college? It was an interesting transition. It felt like the season never ended. Once you finish in December, and for us, I think it was January because we played in a bowl game that year, and we played in the Pac-12 championship my senior year. You know, as soon as it ended, it's like, okay, we have to train now for the NFL. I vividly remember, like, my first NFL workout. I, like, worked out, feeling so sore, and then they're like, okay, now we're going to hit the field. I was like, really? Like, dang, this is the NFL? Like, y'all doing all this in a day? Yeah, it was like that for, like, three more months. You have the combine, pro day. And then you have to get drafted, then OTAs, mini camp, camp, season. So it's like a full, like a rookie year. People in the NFL know the rookie year is like the hardest year because you're playing from college all the way into the next offseason, all the way into the whole year. So it was definitely a hard transition, but they have people in place for you to make it easier. So it was not that bad at the end of the year. And which one's harder, the grind in college, going to classes and doing that whole thing, or pro football your first year? Yeah, I was pro football first year. Pro football first year is the hardest year of football for me personally. I'm sure a lot of guys would agree. But then once you start to get the hang of it, like now that I've been in the league, you know, five going on six years, I kind of can master my offseason. I'm more intentional with my time. I have a lot of time to do business ventures, do other things that I like to do, family, start brand create, do all types of things. So definitely more time to manage now, whereas my first year. What did you think about the NIL rules changing? Now you can make money in college and you couldn't do it when you were back there, right? I wish I could do it back then. I would have had that Hot Cheetos deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go get it now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, I'm just kidding. Though. No, it's real cool. I think it should have been like that. It's kind of ruined some things. I'm seeing a lot of like people transfer. You know, it's kind of become not as traditional. Whereas like growing up, when I looked at college football players and college football, 
It's like Reggie Bush is going to play for USC. Like imagine Reggie Bush playing for any other team or Tavon Austin playing for any other team than, you know, West Virginia or like Tyron Matthew, any other team that just like these are players that, you know, stuck through it, that are very highly marketable. They made the program what it was. And it's kind of like that's what motivated me to go to Colorado. So I could be one of those guys that, you know, when someone talks about Colorado, they're like, oh, you know, Cheeto went there. Now it's like everybody's just everywhere. Two, three different teams in four or five years. It's kind of weird, but at least they're getting paid for it. Yeah, I flip-flop on this all the time because I think part of the reason why they opened up the transfer portal and now that, so I think the rule is now, right, you're allowed to transfer one time without sitting out and you can basically just move to another school. So that's obviously part of the reason. Part of the reason otherwise is people getting paid, right? So it gives the larger schools a bigger advantage. And if you're marketable, if you're in LA versus somewhere else, like that's probably, there's probably more money coming your way. But part of it too is, the coaches, right? The coaches were doing this stuff all the time. They would, they leave a job overnight without telling anyone and a kid commits to their school for four years. And now some of these coaches, they're making pro money, right? Like if you look at some of the new deals this off season, some of these guys are getting paid 10, $11 million a year, which is more than some NFL coaches. So I go back and forth all the time. Like I want it to be fair for the players, obviously, like at some point, to be honest, I think that there's going to be an argument for revenue sharing, right? It sounds crazy, but like, College football is not really college football anymore. It's a pro sport. The money that's involved is the same level as it is for other pro sports. So I think at some point, players are going to stand up and be like, hey, look, we probably deserve some of this too. The difficult part is, right, like in the NFL, you guys have a union, which is different than college football. Yeah, college football, you know, just thinking of a lot of the players I play with, a lot of them didn't make it to the NFL. And because they didn't make it to the NFL, but they were playing college football, they had to sacrifice certain courses. They can't take finance. Engineering might be too hard, you know, just to balance with football. I know people who have done it. I'm not saying it can't be done, but that workload and then you don't really get the best degree and now you have to enter into the workplace. It's kind of hard. So what does the schedule look like in college? Like what time were you waking up? When were you going to classes? When you practice and stuff like that? Yeah. So at Colorado, we woke up around 6, 6.30. We get there about 7, 7.30, first meeting. You have meetings in the morning and then you have your lift and you have practice. And then after that, you have lunch. And then when lunch after like literally you have probably from 12 to one for lunch and to get ready to go to your class. One o'clock is usually your first class all the way up until four or five, however many classes you're taking during that semester or quarter. And then sometimes you have meetings after, especially in fall camp. That's when the schedule is like from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. You're just busy. Yeah, I mean, same thing as, you know, when you transition into the NFL from high school and transition to college, it's going to be a big switch. At one point, I didn't think football was for me. <laughs> and why is that? Just because it was it was too much time commitment? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to fall camp, man, and I'm getting blitzed and my quad sore, my back sore, everything sore. And then I have to learn, too. It was just a hard transition. It was probably one day of me thinking that, to be honest. Not like the whole time, yeah. but... <laughs> It was definitely a hard transition, but once you get the hang of it and once that first year goes by, you're just cruising. Yeah, I got you. All right, so you get drafted. I think you were a, a second-round pick, right, of the Cowboys. So you start getting paid to play football, right, rather than a scholarship and some, you know, stimulus money or whatever it is from school. What is that transition like financially? Is it difficult? Are you immediately trying to hire people to help you do it? Like, just walk me through kind of what you experienced there. Yeah, so you have an agent. As a college athlete, you hear agent, you know, obviously you start thinking like, okay, I am a pro. But one thing that gets misconstrued is that this agent does everything for you, that they're your business manager, they're your financial advisor, they're setting this up, they're setting that up. And really their job is pretty much limited to contracts, or just contracts. So once I got into the league, I realized that I needed to have people around me. 
and I talked to veterans like Sean Lee, who was on the Cowboys. You know, he helped me get a financial advisor. Now, later in my career, I'm starting to realize that I need a business manager. You know, I need an accountant, an attorney, like all these things that need to be at your disposal to really make the best financial decisions. The transition was weird because now, you know, you always just ask your mom for $20. Or mom, can I have $20? Or dad, can I have, you know, $10? Or, you know, I want to do this. Can you help me out? And all of a sudden, you just have this lump sum of money. And it's like, it kind of reverses a little bit. Now, you want to give back to your parents. You have to give back to your parents. You show your sister, your cousin, someone might want to do. And you have to be very meticulous, you know, at 21 years old, you know, you kind of become this provider of a figure. So that's something that not a lot of people talk about is managing relationships. Once you do get this money, you basically go from a kid that you could ask people for this, that what do I look like asking for something for $20 now? You know what I'm saying? It's going to be like, Cheeto, what are you talking about? Where's my $20? So it's kind of like you become a provider like instantly. Well, you grow up and you're essentially 21 years old at the time, and you're forced to make all of these more adult decisions very quickly with large amounts of money that when it comes to the NFL specifically, a lot of people haven't had before. So it's certainly difficult. When it comes to the resources, does the NFL provide like adequate resources or is it kind of just like checking boxes? Let me be careful. Well, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you could be honest. Yeah, I'll say depending on the team, I was blessed in the Cowboys that they were really meticulous with the rookies, making sure that they had all the resources to you know make good decisions. Whether or not the rookies, us, listen, well, that was up to us, but they definitely had it available. Young, you don't really know the severity of you know certain things. You're just trying to get onto the field. You're trying to make plays. You're trying to make an impact in the league. This has been your dream for so long, and now you're here, and this guy's talking about, I need to get a financial advisor. Like, man, I'm trying to make plays. So it's definitely a balance of the team and then also the rookies understanding the severity that you need to be focused in. Not all the time it happens that way. Do you think most people understand how it works immediately? Or like in my mind, I've heard some people talk about playing for that second contract, right? Like, especially if you're like a, not a high-drafted rookie first, second-round pick, and you're a lower-end guy or you're an undrafted free agent and you come onto a team, like, yeah, you're making good money. The league minimum is still, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. But a lot of these guys talk about how, hey, if I don't play well, right, if I'm not at the top of the game, if I don't do this and that, then I'm not going to get a second contract. And in a lot of cases, the second contract is where people actually end up making their most money. Mm -hmm. I definitely think, you know, it's one of those things you got to keep the main thing, the main thing. Like you got this far because of football, you got to make sure that your game is on point. You could worry about all the finances, NFTs, crypto, stocks private deals, real estate, all you want. But if your game not on point, you ain't going to be having money to <laughs> do these things, you know? So that definitely takes precedent, man. That definitely takes precedent is making sure your game on point and use these other things, these other avenues to, you know, learn a little bit. And then when you're ready, you'll have the assets to, to go into those things. So I definitely say keep the main thing, the main thing. Did you splurge on anything immediately? Yes. I'll say, you know, I obviously got myself a car. That was my first car. It was a Mercedes-Benz CLS 550. Good car, used. though. Yes, yeah, pretty dope car. I was Matt Black, too. But then I accidentally crashed. It. But that's not Rims or no? Oh, you crashed it? <laughs> yeah. My totaled it? Totaled it or like? Yeah, I got totaled. <laughs> Were you okay or so, or you, you got hurt? Yeah, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I upgraded right. now to a 2020. That's the important thing. AMG GT Mercedes. So. All right, so you upgraded. Yeah, a little better. I said the first thing I spurred on was my mom always wanted a Range Rover. She told me that when she was young, she used to see this Range Rover drive around. She was like, I always wanted one of those, you know, brand new. I made sure I did that for her in my first year. That was probably the biggest thing that I bought my first year other than my house. That's awesome. That's cool, man. Congratulations. Yeah, okay. How do you think about investing today, right? Is this something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? Is it something that you're 
pretty hands off about and you let your your financial advisors control. Just talk me through kind of how you think of or your approach to that in general. Yeah, I'm very hands on. I've kind of gotten blessed to meet a lot of people who have done it and are in a different tax bracket than I am and are very, you know, intentional with how they invest. When I first got into the league, like I talked to Sean Lee about how to get a financial advisor and stuff like that and started learning about stocks and things like that. And after a while I kind of learned that it only makes so much at a certain time. It's not as liquid as I want it to be. It's not paying me too much. So then, you know, I started meeting people and I started learning about private deals in real estate. It's like I'm getting a new private, at least two or three new private deals like a week. It's on my table. It's just like, oh, and I'm the one going through it. I'm the one, you know, seeing if it's good. I have mentors who also help me. So that's kind of where my sector is right now is private deals, just real estate, startups, things I can get equity in that could pay me dividends and income. I don't know how many, if any, endorsement deals you're doing and stuff like that, but have you started to transition from the fact of like, okay, someone will pay me to do this versus I pay them and I can actually have more upside and own some of the equity? Yeah, that's the main thing. Now it's like, I am a brand. Like if I want to post something on my page, yes, I could post it, but I have a price as a brand. Now as a person... You know, I always show love, you know, of course, but I'm also talking about things that could produce monetary value. You know, I definitely like to partake in that too. You know, if a friend or not, not even a friend, but if a business reaches out to me and they want to send me something, they can send me it. But if you want to post, it might be this price. So I've definitely transitioned into that thought process. Yeah. And the other thing I think a lot about too, and I've had this conversation with numerous athletes at this point is like, a lot of people, especially guys like you and, and other guys of that nature where you have a name, right? And you're known and you, you plan a good team or you're in a, a market that people want to interact with. Like you're at a point in your career right now where the best private market investors, the best venture capitalists, whatever, they want to hang out with you. You know what I mean? So it's like they want to hang out with athletes. They want to hang out with football players. They want to go to games. They want to go to dinner. And I don't know if he's comfortable with me saying his name, but it's an athlete that everyone would know for sure. A big name guy. He asked for advice once on this and the advice was so simple. It was just like, dude, call up the best investors. He's in New York City. And it was like, call up the best investors in New York City and just try to come shadow them for a day. Right. Just try to come learn because ultimately they all want to be seen with you. So take advantage of that because what you'll find is when you do that, one, they're going to be like, okay, this guy's cool. He wants to learn. But two, they'll start calling you with all these deals. And they'll start saying, hey, look, I'm investing in this. I'm doing this. I'm writing a big check in this one. Maybe this one's not for you and so forth. And you'll find yourself in all of these deals with a lot of the top guys. And that's one way that you can minimize your misses, right? Minimize your errors and start to say, hey, look, I'm starting to really get some good deal flow now. So I, I think that's always been like one good approach for professional athletes too. Yeah, definitely. I think I've kind of stumbled into that on accident. You explained it perfectly though. Like, yeah, these guys. And I wonder like, oh, is it because I can talk a little bit about these investments? But obviously it's because I'm an athlete. And No, well, not- it's both, right? They don't want to be around an idiot either. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it, it, like at some point that gets exhausting. You're like, all right, look, like this isn't worth it. But if yeah. you can, you know, if, if you're knowledgeable about it, and I think the second part too is just showing that you care, right? So if it's something that uh, you're obviously interested in and they can tell that, then it opens up the conversation even more. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is that we need mentors. And the best way to get to a mentor is to humble yourself before him. You know, I always tell people, you know, these type of people that you're talking about, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest about this thing. I know that you've reached this level because you did X, Y, Z. You know, I'd love to learn from you. You could just treat me like a person. You could just share things. I don't even want any deals. Just, you know, teach me how you vet or teach me how you do this. Teach me. And it's like, I humble myself before them. And then like, oh, this guy. I feel like a lot of people in that bracket, they want to give back to younger people. You know, they kind of can see themselves in other people 
who are trying to get on their path too. So yeah, you're hitting it on the nail. Well, they like teaching people too, I think I think is part of it for sure. But okay, so I got to ask another question also, which is who's the best player you've ever faced in the league? <sighs> the first name that popped in my head off the rip was Devontae Adams. Okay, yeah. Just Devontae Adams. But if I have to think about it, it might be someone else. But I'll say Devontae Adams for now. And what makes him so difficult? Well, obviously his name has reached that level to where, you know, like Julio three, four years ago has reached. When you face Devontae, you have to come with your end game. This year, other than other years, I was traveling with the best receivers. So that was a guy I had to find wherever he was and, you know, match his routes, do all this kind of stuff. And he's just a dog, you know, very crisp with his route running, very crisp with his hands. Everything's just, everything that a receiver would like to have, he has. So it was definitely a good matchup. Gotcha. And what is it like playing in Dallas? I feel like Dallas, from an outside perspective looking in, like the stadium is fucking massive. Everything is football, right? You walk through the tunnel or whatever, that looks like you're going to the Staples Center. Is it just a different vibe down there? It definitely is. You know, football's entertainment at the end of the day. And I think the Dallas Cowboys is the best show that we have. Even when they're not doing good or they are doing good, it's always going to talk about. So you're going to hear about it, you know, or you're going to watch it on ESPN, first take. Fox, whatever. Everything's kind of built a little bit around the Cowboys. When you play there, you have to take that in mind. You know, you're going to get criticized. You're going to get praised. When you're doing really good, it's going to get real high. When you're doing bad, it's going to get real low. But as a professional, you know, you just got to lock in and do your job the best of your ability. And I think one thing that's come onto like the surface nowadays is like a lot of athletes are like backing out of sports because of mental health and doing this and doing that. I think it's because of the social media era. But I think the Cowboys is one of those teams where you have to be you know, strong. You got to have a strong mind, hard mind, because you're going to get it from all different types of angles. So, yeah. How do you think about social media and mental health in general? Like, is that something that you actively think about more? Do you just try to stay offline? Like, how do you deal with all that stuff? Well, yeah, I don't even trip off it. I've dumped it down to, I'm not an athlete, I'm an entertainer. So I'm not, I don't even exist to half of these people. I could be walking around the street, they meet me, they're like, oh, you Cheeto, you know, da 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 Or I feel like a lot of athletes think the same, man. You know, I laugh at, you know, when they tell me I'm trash or, you know, I'm doing real good, no matter what, I just laugh. Like, it's funny to me. Like, I kind of just go about my way. Not every player has that system and it takes time to build it. But I think the simplest way to break it down is that we're entertainers. People are always going to talk about entertainers. People argue Will Smith is better than Martin Lawrence or Cat Williams better than Dave Chappelle. It's like, it's just constant. It's always going to be some type of talk. And that's just talk. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but... Odell Beckham Jr. has this funny story where he was, I think he was in New York still at the time. And you, I mean, you know, Odell, he's dancing and he's doing all this shit. And he's, he's, he's like the purest sense of entertainer, right? And I think he understands that and knows that. He said one time he was out and these kids run up to him and they're like, dance, Odell, dance. And he's like, bro, I'm fucking buying a hot dog. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just like, dude, like, that's just not, one, it's not cool. Two, that's what you got to put up with if you're in kind of in that, in that position and in that thing. So I think that's an interesting way to look at it because it's so true. Like to some people, you guys are just entertainers. They forget like the human element of it. Yeah, definitely. I think um, fans think that we belong to them. And it's rightfully so. They pay their tickets. They've been diehard fans. You know, my grandfather used to be whatever. And they feel like the team owes them or, or they own the team. And when they see a player, you know, it's like this guy, I, I own him too. Like he, he belongs to my, my team. He should be doing this. He should be doing that. And it's kind of this world that we built in sports in general. So it's just, it just comes with the game. Once you know who you are and you're real confident in who you are, you know, you'll definitely deal with it. I feel like it's changing a little bit though. 
I feel like it used to be worse. It's still, to your point, pretty bad. I don't know if bad's the right word, but you know that's certainly somewhat of the mindset. But I feel like we've shifted now a little bit to more of like an empowerment scenario where people trust athletes' opinion. They want to hear what they have to say on certain topics. And like you guys are pretty influential, you know what I mean? So there's a whole class of people that look up to you guys. And I feel like the more we can empower people to, to say what's on their mind and their opinion, because at the end of the day, you guys have life experiences that's way different than other people. You know what I mean? I saw a stat the other day that was like a third of the people in the United States have never left the country, Whoa. right? Sounds crazy to think about, but then it was like 15% of the people have never left their home state. Wow. And it's very like a small thing to think about like, okay, maybe I traveled, maybe I didn't, but it just opens you up to a whole new thing of life experiences. And without that, like without that context, you're probably missing a lot of the nuance of some of these topics. So it's interesting to think about. All right. So what about crypto? NFTs. What's the deal here? So I actually, uh, an article got published today. We're recording this on Monday the 7th from Complex. And they asked for some quotes and I talked to the guy over there and Jimmy Butler contributed and Mark Cuban contributed. And our conversation was around athletes being paid in crypto. Obviously, you've probably seen some of these deals like just general opinions on on crypto, athletes getting paid in it, some of the stuff you've seen in the locker room, like are people interested in it and so on? Yeah, like I know... I think a couple of football players are getting paid in crypto. I know Francis Ngannou, I think he's getting paid in crypto. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big thing right now. And, you know, when we talk about the internet age, a lot of people back then had a chance to get into a lot of these big companies, Microsoft, Google, Uber, and our age, the age that we're in, it's like, what is that? And it kind of looks like it's crypto NFTs, you know, like that thing that might blow up in 20, 30 years and, you know, really start to see the fruits of our labor. Me personally, I've dabbled, dabbled and dabbled in it. But just with training and these other things that I've been trying to learn about investments, you know, a lot of these startups and private deals, it's kind of been my focus right now. But I think definitely at some point, whether I like it or not, I'm going to have to learn more about it. One thing that's interesting is a lot of players on my team are into it. There's a player, I won't say his name, but a player who's very reserved, doesn't talk that much. But once you start talking about NFTs, <laughs> boy, light up. He, he lights up. Yeah, definitely something that is the new wave of making money, it seems like. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like if anyone's to get it, it's this younger generation because we spend a lot of time online. You know what I mean? Like everyone's talking about this metaverse, the idea of this digital world. And it's almost kind of like, yo, we're already in it. You know what I mean? Like you're on your phone all the time. People are watching YouTube videos for hours a day. They're talking to their friends on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. And you're spending majority of your time kind of in this digital world per se. So whether it's NFTs or crypto in general, I think it's just something that's going to gonna get bigger. But it's interesting to see because I think what we've specifically seen in the NFL and other places is like athletes get a lot of shit when they do like speculative things, right? Or things that are new because everyone's like, oh, athletes are dumb with money. They don't know what they're doing. They lose money, all this stuff. But in the, the day, like Odell Beckham, again, is like another good example because he was in the news the, a few weeks ago for taking his money in Bitcoin, right? And they're like, oh, Bitcoin's down 50%. He lost all this money. He didn't make whatever. And at the end of the day, like this is such a small portion of his overall portfolio, right? Of his investments. And it's like, if you went to a financial advisor, if you went to your financial advisor or anyone else's, I don't think anyone would have a problem with you saying, hey, I'm going to put two, three, four, five percent of my total assets in digital currencies or in Bitcoin or something of that nature. Because at the end of the day, right, it's like a hedge against all the other things in your portfolio and it offers asymmetric upside to everything else, right? There's more volatility and so forth. So I think ultimately, like, this is just something that's going to get more popular. So we know the guys at FTX pretty well. And like, we were having a conversation with them earlier. And the whole reason why they're attacking sports so hard is because the sports fan is like two to three data shows them it's they're two to three times more likely 
to download or be interested in crypto than other industries, right? So like, who's the perfect filter or funnel to get to those sports fans is athletes. And at the end of the day, like that's a match made in heaven. So I think it's only going to get bigger, man. Yeah. So it's in terms of NFTs, crypto, I've seen people treat it like day trading. I've seen people treat it as a long-term play. What would you think? How do you get paid? How are you planning to exit when it's time to exit? Is my question. Look, man, I think trying to day trade anything for me specifically is a loser's game. I think that there's people that do that for a living and are good at it. Like, I'm going to let them do that. You know what I mean? Like, you got to know your strengths and your weaknesses. And mine is not that. I have a large, large years ago allocated like 95% of liquid net worth to Bitcoin. And the whole idea was, look, I think that this is going to be here 50, 100 years from now. I see a very, very obvious use case for this. It offers the most asymmetric upside of any of the other assets in the market. And I'm willing to bet a lot of money on it, right? I'm willing to put a, a substantial amount of my portfolio on it. And today, that seems like people within crypto would be like, that's a boomer thing to do, right? Like, you're not risky enough. You're not using this. You're not doing that. But five years ago, that was seen as insane, right? So things change quickly and people forget history. But ultimately, like, you just got to figure out what you're good at. And I know personally, like, the best recipe for me is just, like, buy something and hold it forever and not be worried about it. Like, I don't even check the price. You know what I mean? Like, maybe once a week, once every few days. But it's something that, like, I'm not even concerned about. So someone like you, if you're, if you're going to be anxious about it and you're going to be looking at the price all the time, if you're going to be checking if you're up money, down money, whatever, and buying and selling these things, like, it's probably a better idea to just dollar cost average into a couple assets that you really believe in. Wake up 5, 10, 15 years from now and be like, okay, how to do? And put money in that you're willing to lose, right? Because at the end of the day, whether it's a stock, a bond, a house, real estate, Bitcoin, whatever, like anything could go to zero. You know what I mean? Like, do I think it's going to happen? No. Is there a low probability? Yeah. But ultimately, like you got to be comfortable with some level of risk. And I think that that's a part that a lot of people miss out on is that they want things too fast. You know what I mean? They, they're not willing to wait on specific stuff. And if you're buying these assets, like you got to be willing to hold them for the long run. Yeah. Now with Bitcoin, it seems as though everybody believes in it. Well, a large portion of people believe in it. And my question is, if it were to scale, like how, how everybody believes it to scale, how many new billionaires would we have? Well, we would have a lot, but one of the things with it is, right, there's only ever going to be 21 million. So there's a capped and constrained supply. So we know exactly the beauty of Bitcoin. And you probably already know some of this is that it's all programmatic, right? It's driven by mathematics and the technology has an algorithm behind it and math behind it, where we know exactly how much is being entered into supply every single day. We know that there's about 19 million currently in existence. There's only ever going to be 21 million. And once you have that supply side figured out, right, because with the US dollar, we have no idea, right? I think maybe it was six months ago or five months ago at this point, where 40% of all dollars in circulation had literally been printed in the last 12 months or the last 18 months, right? So like literally, they're just making money out of thin air. And, and people laugh, but like, that's literally the truth. That's what they're doing. So when you have the supply side, figured out. All you got to worry about is the demand side, right? And what we've seen on the demand side is not only are retail traders or retail investors adopting Bitcoin at a rapid pace. So if it's the chart is basically up and to the right. They're doing what most retail investors do, which is just dollar cost average, right? They put a, a certain amount of each paycheck into the asset every week or every month or whatever it is. And maybe that goes up a little bit during bull runs and slows down a little bit during bear markets. But ultimately, it's pretty steady, just you know, a certain percentage of checks. And then you're basically betting on the institutional market. Does this become an asset that's more important? And I think I'm obviously betting that it will. And I think what we're seeing across the world is a lot of people are doing that also.
also. So I think there's certainly going to be, and there are some people that made money on it. I think that's also part of like the negative to it too, right? Is like some of the large institutional investors are a little upset because these random dudes on the internet on Reddit found an asset 10 years ago or 15 years ago and got rich off it, right? And they beat them to it and so forth. But I also think we're at a point now where we're still relatively early to global adoption. If you look at the chart, we're about where the internet was in maybe 2000 or 2001, right? And look how important that technology ended up being. And, and maybe this is bigger, maybe this is smaller, but ultimately when you see a graph where numbers are overlaying and tracking towards the growth of the internet, like that's probably something you want to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you hit it on the nail when you said, you know, they beat them too. I think a lot of these people that don't like Bitcoin, if they got in at the right time, they would be Bitcoin crypto fanatics. <laughs> yeah, for sure. People beat them to it and now they kind of have to retrace their steps and see what happened, what went wrong. Well, as, you, as you're talking to all these people, I'm sure you've realized this too to some degree, but a lot of people in finance, they do this thing, what they call talk up their own book, right? They talk their own book, which is investments that they own, things that they either own or they're shorting or whatever. And they'll say, this is the best thing ever. Or this is the worst thing ever. And everyone, like I'm a huge believer that everyone has bias, right? Everyone is biased to some degree. I'd rather just deal with people who are willing to admit theirs, yeah. right? Like, hey, look, I own Bitcoin. I'm biased as hell. Like I think it's going to go up. I think it's going to be more valuable and so forth. Like at least I'm telling you yeah. so you don't have to guess when I tell you, oh, this thing's valuable or this thing's not. Like does he own it, yeah. right? And we've seen this with politicians and other people where, where people own things or they have interest in things and they don't tell you or you don't know. And then you do or make decisions based off their comments when it's not always in the best interest of yourself. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is the liquidity. You know, if I'm doing a private deal, I know I'm paying this guy 100000 50000 however much, you know what I'm saying? He's going to be holding that money. And then a lot of times they backfill and they do all types of things to, you know, hold on to the most amount of assets. Are not really investing their own money. They're investing their own money, but they brought this deal to the table with only investing 10% of it. Like, huh? Cheeto, that's the number one piece of advice I give to people or athletes that are doing deals. I always say, ask them how much money they're putting in. Exactly. Right? Because at the end of the day, like if you don't have any skin in the game, I'm out. Exactly. I'm out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the biggest red flag is when someone says, hey, let's do this deal or whatever, but you're going to use my money? Like, nah, let's, let's get some of your money in here too. And it's the same thing with financial advisors. Like, there's this running joke in the Bitcoin community of like, I'm only getting a financial advisor if they got more money than me, <laughs> right? Like, if you got more money than me, then sure, we could sign up and we'll talk and do all that stuff. If I got more money than you, then like, why are we... Why are we doing this? <laughs> so I think that there's some give and take, right? You want to obviously have people with experience, but you want people where your incentives are in line. If if you're putting money in a deal and they're putting money in the deal, there you go. Your incentives are in line and they're going to go try to do a good job. Yeah, definitely. It's like if they, if they don't have more money than you and they're telling you to do this, it's like, well, why haven't you done it already? You know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. 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 And there's nuance to this and stuff, of course, right? Maybe there's certain circumstances as to they're younger, they're in a different scenario, whatever it is. But ultimately, like, yeah, you want to align yourself with people who are trying to accomplish the same goals that you are. And I think the best way to do that usually is with money because people are, are ultra sensitive to, to money in general. All right, man, I appreciate you doing this. Oh, the last question I have for you. Uh, this is kind of a stupid question, but I was at the Super Bowl and I saw... It was obviously went viral online afterwards. But the kicker, Evan McPherson, did he really stay on the damn sideline during the halftime show? Is that a real thing? There's a lot of stuff that during the game you don't realize is happening. And on the bus back ride home, you're like, wait a second. I didn't see him in the locker room, huh? You know, it's like. Bro, he's sitting there with his hands up, like smiling at the yeah. camera. Like, yeah, I'm watching the show. I was dying. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Honestly, since our team last year, we, I really truly believe that we were one of the coolest, like, laid-back teams in the league. 
you know, we had so much fun. Even when Brennan Hargraves came onto the field without his pads on and he got penalty flags for it, but that's the essence of our team. We really just enjoy just like, like we just enjoy being, you know, wherever we're at in the moment. I think that's why we've made it so far. Like no one's tripping off that either. You know, that's Evan. He still went out there and made 14 out of 14 in the playoffs, you know, so. He did his job. He deserves, if he wants to go out there and kick it with Snoop Dogg, you know, Crip walking and all that, he can go watch and try to learn. But we're going to ask him in the locker room now to, to, to see what you learn, bro. <laughs> yeah, I was I was dying because at the end of the day, I'm like, yo, if I'm the coach, he's making kicks. I'm not I'm not messing with him. You know what I mean? Like, you let him do what he wants to do. But it was funny to see him out there during the Super Bowl. Yeah, definitely. All right, man, I'll let you go. I appreciate you taking the time and doing this. Where can people find you online, on, on Twitter, Instagram, and so on? Yeah, so if you type in C-H-I-D-O, I should pop up on both platforms. I'm also starting a clothing brand with my last name, I was yet N-G. You can also find me there as well. So yeah, y'all just stay tuned. Appreciate Joe for having me. Doing a lot of great things on your podcast, on your show. I even learned a lot about crypto and how to view it and stuff like that. So really appreciate you having me. Of course, man. We'll have to do it again soon. Yes, sir. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.